0: Open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 2. We shall take a survey of the doctrine of total depravity. I've expanded what we have available to us greatly. There isn't sufficient time for us to deal in all the details, but let's take a survey of it from beginning to end, if the Lord will grant us that, and see the profit that hopefully will come to our souls because of it. Total depravity. It's usually associated with the T of the acronym TULIP. TULIP stands for the five points of the doctrine of Calvinism. T for total depravity, U for unconditional election, L for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace, and P for perseverance of the saints. That's what's commonly known as Calvinism. And it's five points, and T is the first one, total depravity. I want to define it to you this way, and it's a long definition, but I hope that you'll get the overall message. Every person is born spiritually dead. He is conceived with a nature at war against God and the things of God. Human affections and desires are so ruined that men hate God and rebel against His commandments. Though he has not lost his faculties of intelligence or reasoning, man's ability to perceive and appreciate the things of God is so corrupted by sin that he only despises and resents them. He has no love or fear of God and is directed entirely by selfish ambitions towards sin, even when he does things that appear noble. He will not humble himself to seek God, for his desires are totally corrupt and biased against God. It is impossible for him to obey or please God, for he is spiritually dead, fully convinced that holy things of truth and wisdom are foolish, and he resents any effort to tell him otherwise. So, a definition of total depravity. It's the way we were born. It's the nature we have by our first conception and birth, and it's something that God has to change to give us the nature of a child of God so that we can love our Heavenly Father, love His other children, and be fit citizens of Heaven. You know, it's also been called total inability, radical corruption, pervasive depravity, righteous incapability. All kinds of names men have made up for it. What we mean is that man is spiritually dead. And that's a Bible word from... Genesis chapter 2 and Ephesians 2 and other places. The doctrine of total depravity, either understood or rejected, affects how you view life and apply truth in many areas. It affects what you believe about psychology, sociology, philanthropy, child behavior, child training, child punishment, criminal rehabilitation, civil government temptation and sin, means of salvation, the providence of God in the world, and so forth, are greatly influenced by what you believe about what I'm about to tell you, and that's the total depravity of man. It creates your worldview of man and how you react to human conduct, enemies, sin, and yourself. It's foundational and necessary for any true study of salvation to start with what we need to be saved from. And there are several things we need to be saved from, but this is one of them, and that is a corrupt, evil, polluted, God-hating, sin-loving nature. Right. Distinguishing marks of our church include unconditional election, that God chose men apart from anything He saw in them to give them eternal life, and monergistic regeneration, which means regeneration without the cooperation or help of man. Monergistic being set as opposed to synergistic where God and men cooperate for regeneration. We believe that monergistic regeneration takes place before a person believes the gospel. God must regenerate them and give them a new nature before man will believe. We believe in unconditional election. Both of those depend upon a foundation stone called total depravity. If you don't believe in total depravity, you'll believe in the synergy between God and the sinner. If you don't believe in total depravity, you'll believe in some form of conditional election because God looked and saw some reaction or effort on your part toward Him. It's this doctrine that separates us from so many for they merely, for they merely have man as wounded, sick, and sore. Reminds you of a song? Never mind. Just be careful in what we, how we think and how we sin how we sing. Total depravity is the personal, vital, practical condition and character of every man before he's born again by the sovereign monarchistic power of God the Holy Spirit for a very different character and conduct to result from that. Do you know that you're born again? Do you know that you've been quickened or alive in the Lord Jesus Christ? If you believe you are, are you showing evidence at all levels of your being? Right. And personal conduct. Here we go. The warning, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man saying, that is the man Adam, of every tree of the garden, thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. This is the warning of depravity the warning of total depravity god made man in his own image as chapter 1 verse 26 and 27 tell us god said let us make man in our image after our likeness please remember these words genesis 1:26 let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he, him, male and female, created he, them, in God's image. In verse 31 of that first chapter, God saw everything that he had made, including the man, and behold, it was very Good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Now God made Adam in his image. God made Adam very good. And then God warned Adam that if he ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would surely die. God plainly warned him that he would die if he ate the fruit. Death. The choice of the words of the word of God are important to us. The word death Death is the cessation, the end of life, and a very strong word about a drastic and complete change that would transpire if Adam were to eat of that fruit. Death includes the end of all ability, all cooperation, all energy, all participation, all strength, and all vitality. Death is not disease. Death is not debilitation. Death is not disadvantage. Death is not handicap, sickness, sores, or wounds. Death is a final and conclusive result that cannot be altered by any object or any other, but a Creator God. Thank you, Lord. We begin reading the Bible. We come to Genesis 1, we come to Genesis 2, and all of a sudden, out of 1,189 chapters in the Bible, we are told and confronted with the truth that mankind is dead. Though unstated here the question needs to be asked and answered. How did Adam die? So we'll ask it. just dead, and we'll answer it. Let's come to Genesis chapter three and look at the first lie. The first lie. Genesis chapter three verse one. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, yea, Do you believe Genesis 2.17? Thou shalt surely die. Many teach contrary to that doctrine God warned of and promised in Genesis 2.17. And they're teaching a satanic lie. The satanic lie is Genesis 3.4. Thou shalt not surely die. The serpent called the devil and Satan according to Revelation 12. Questioned God's words and altered them. He promised that Eve would not surely die. She showed weakness of her character by believing his lie and was thereby deceived, as she will admit in later in this chapter. And as Paul tells of her in 1st Timothy 2.14, the lie has been perpetuated by Satan and doctrinal dupes ever since the Garden of Eden about man's condition. Women are still moved by Arminian nonsense for free will and rejection of total depravity teaching that man is only wounded or sick not truly dead is the same lie that satan told eve right the fountain of error the fountain head of error regarding man's condition the nature of his salvation is right here right here if we if we make a mistake right here we're going to misunderstand salvation we're going to misunderstand grace we're going to misunderstand the work of regeneration conditional regeneration which most of this world believes that you get a person to do something by enticing them one way or another and then they can be born again, conditional regeneration denies man's death and or invents a pre-regeneration work of grace which is not taught in the Bible. There is no pre-regeneration work of grace taught in the Bible because there is no grace that can work pre-regeneration because man is dead. Even the things of the Spirit of God are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them. The carnal mind is enmity against God and is not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. There is no ability on the part of man to cooperate with any sort of prevenient grace prior to regeneration. We need life-giving grace by the power of God to give us spiritual life to be able to respond to any part of the gospel. Now we have the result. Verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise... And that's how you sin, and that's how I sin. The three steps to sin. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's the the devil's tool bag. He did it in Genesis chapter 3. He did it, he tried to do it to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 by trying to tempt Jesus to turn stones into bread. The lust of the flesh, by tempting Jesus with the kingdoms of the world. The lust of the eyes, and by tempting Jesus to presume upon the word of God from Psalm 91, the pride of life. These things are taught in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, as the tools of the devil. This is how you said. Right. And she did eat. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. We have taken three steps in the, in the beginning chapters of Genesis. We have a warning in Genesis two seventeen. We have a lie in Genesis 3, 4, and we have an act in Genesis 3, 6 that violates the warning of Genesis two seventeen. Now, do you believe those three things? If you believe those three things, then we believe that at the moment that Adam and Eve ate the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, contrary to God's promised warning in Genesis 3, 6, they did die. They died. Now it doesn't say they died. There is no death mentioned in the rest of Genesis 3. Did they die? Absolutely they died. And I love the silence. Because do you know what the silence tells us to do? Look at the results. Look at the effects. And we will see the death defined that was promised in 2.17. I love that. If we just had the word death... In Genesis 3, we would cheat and not put forth the effort to define death. But we have death promised in 2.17, and so let's now define it by looking here. There's no statement in the context, but we can figure it out. How did Adam die? Now, by looking at 5.5, we'll cheat and run ahead to Genesis 5.5. It says all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And because we find him talking to God after eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he and Eve giving birth to Cain, Abel, Seth, and others, then we know that he lived for a long time physically. Because he couldn't die the second death until the great day of judgment, which hasn't even come yet for us, then he didn't die the second death, and he didn't die a bodily death, but he died some death that day. So let's see if we can find it. Adam and Eve most definitely died that day because I believe Genesis 2.17. I wouldn't need another testimony in Scripture. I wouldn't need Genesis 3.7 to the end. I wouldn't need Ephesians 2, Colossians 2, and 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that talk about the state of man being dead. All I need is Genesis 2.17. Do I have a congregation that believes the same thing? That's all we need. In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And because he died physically 930 years later, there must be another kind of death under consideration. And because he can't die the second death until he's tossed into the lake of fire in the great day of Revelation 20 and 21, then there must be another death. Let's, let's look at it. Immediately, verse 7, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7, we can see the death. The eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They immediately knew that they were naked. Guilt and shame replaced purity and sincerity. Amazing. Guilt and shame. Fear replaced purity and sincerity that they had between themselves. And security. Wow, they are messed up. Now, how many times had they gone bowling together? I speak as a fool for all of you to think. Had they been intimate yet? Or was Adam waiting for a better month? They knew each other. They knew each other well. And all of a sudden, they are corrupt. They don't trust each other. They feel guilty, shamed fearful with each other. They made fig leaves. It tells us in Genesis 3-7. They sewed fig leaves together. And made themselves aprons. Aprons just covering covering their genitals. They designed their own escape. From guilt and shame. With no thought of repentance. They're using a band-aid approach to sin. The band-aid approach to sin. Is worrying about the consequences of sin. Rather than the origin source of and cause of sin. And brother Jerry and I did not coordinate today's activities at all. And I promise you that in the name of our Lord. Right. I trust him so abundantly. And he has proven himself abundant today. Again in your midst. Amen. We did not collaborate, corroborate at all on this matter. He, they were worried about the external consequences of feeling some guilt and shame. That they tried to cover with fig leaves instead of dealing with the matter from their heart, instead of dealing with real repentance. And brethren, do we do that? Jerry's already confronted you once. If you heard me being verbally supportive of what he was saying, it's not because we were cooperating together. It's because the Spirit of God was cooperating together. Don't miss the boat. It's a heart issue. The symptoms and the consequences are quite irrelevant. And and relatively ridiculous to even worry about, think about, talk about, or try to cover. In comparison to the heart issue of sin. Where is their heart? They're making fig leaves to cover their genitals instead of dealing with the real issue of their sin. That's all in verse 7. Verse 8 says, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. When they knew God was close and looking for them, when God was coming to confront them, when they had God available for them, they tried to get away from Him. Are you with me on these descriptions? See, it doesn't say that he, they died in Genesis chapter 3. It just tells us these things. When confronted by God, Adam used fear, devilish and selfish fear, to excuse fleeing. Listen to his excuse in verse 10. Adam said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked and I hid myself. That isn't the fear of God. That's the devilish fear of God. The devils fear God and tremble. The real fear of God would run to him and repent. Because there's forgiveness with the Lord that he may be feared in a very different way. Oh, this is devilish fear. I can't trust you. I can't deal with you. You would just condemn me. You don't understand me. You wouldn't treat me fairly. So I went and hid. Adam then blamed God for giving him Eve in the next verse. Ever do that before? Then, then Adam blamed Eve. Have you ever blamed your wife for anything that's happened in your family? I'm glad I haven't. Adam then blamed God for giving him Eve and blamed Eve for offering him the fruit. Look at this creature. He hides from God. He uses a band-aid approach for sin. He resents God, he hides, and he blames his wife. And then Eve blames the devil for beguiling her. Well, you moron were the one talking to him, listening to him, and thinking about what he was saying instead of remembering what God had said. My brethren, look at this. We've made it no further than Genesis chapter 3, and we are learning something about the study of man or anthropology. We're learning about depravity right here. God promised. Satan lied. And the truth of the matter is, Adam and Eve, our first two parents in a perfect world, being good and very good, made by God personally, having God as their personal companion in the Garden of Eden, are messed up. Observe their total lack of repentance. Repentance is repudiation of what you have done and coming to God in a claim for mercy with a contrite and a broken heart. There is none of that. They make human efforts to cover their guilt and shame rather than dealing with the source issue of their wicked, selfish hearts. Look at the efforts they made to avoid dealing with God, the declaration of their devilish fear of God, and the blame game. Everybody wants to blame someone else. It isn't someone else. It's you. It's you. And it's only you. David didn't say, my wives haven't given enough recently. Recently. David didn't say, my older brothers abused me when I was young. David didn't say, my parents didn't train me well enough. David didn't say, I had to spend three years in the public schools and I was exposed exposed to pornography. David knew who had sinned. Right. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. But see, the natural man doesn't ever want to say that. It's somebody else's fault. In fact, it's really God's fault. God hasn't taken care of me, and God isn't one I can deal with because he doesn't understand me, and he's just going to condemn me, and blah, blah, blah. On they go. And brethren, if it weren't for the grace of God, every single one of us has in our soul a wellspring of hell that would bubble up and say everything that I'm saying, and a whole lot more right. in more graphic language. Yeah, right. And so we have a result. They showed no humility. Brethren, studying this this week, though I've taught it in vague terms to you in the past, no humility, no resentment of what they had done, no contrition toward themselves for their evil deed. That those, the two of them should have been wringing their hands and confessing their sins. Look what we have done. Eve, Eve, we have sinned against the Lord. Adam, what are we going to do? Adam, we have wrecked this beautiful world. None of that. It's your fault, Eve. It's the devil's fault. They showed no affection, regret, remorse, or desire toward God for amends or mercy. Shouldn't they have run out of those trees and grabbed, grabbed God by his ankles? And told them that your word is true. And we believed a lie. Let me put it in Elihu's words. We have sinned and perverted that which was right. And it profited us not. Amen. Job 33, 27 and 28. If you can tell, it's become one of my favorite confessional verses in the Bible. Right. Now Psalm 51 is a little larger than Job 33. Why didn't they do that? Because they were now depraved. Adam and Eve died in affection and desire toward God and His things, becoming the enemies of God. They were now dead in their spiritual nature toward God and righteousness. No desire or effort toward repentance. No declaration of God's righteousness. They were foolish, fearful, irreverent, complaining, rebellious, without fear or conviction. Any free will that they had was long gone. For now they were dead toward God and any obedience in His direction. Scripture backs up this. what I've just told you, Scripture backs it up by saying in Ephesians chapter two and verse one, "And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins." Colossians 2:13 says the same thing: We're dead. Solomon would say, 3000 years after this event, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, that God made man upright, but he hath sought out. Many inventions. He has invented things against God's Word and God's way of doing things. Therefore, the warning of Genesis 2.17, contrary to the lie of Genesis three four, has been fulfilled upon our race, and whether there have been 45 or 90 billion souls conceived since Adam and Eve, they were all conceived spiritually dead, depraved, destroyed. Lord... We look for a Savior. When you have sinned, and I hardly need to take these points from my outline because of Brother Jerry's excellent work, when you have sinned, when you sin, run to God. Amen. If you've hurt me, don't. I don't care. And it doesn't matter. You know, if you get bored later, but run to God. And make peace with him. But Jerry has done an excellent job by the grace of God. I love the Lord's coordination Amen. of our agenda for this church. There is no being with greater forgiveness and mercy for the truly contrite and penitent. Do you know how fast he forgave David? Because embodied in David's words, I have sinned against the Lord, is Psalm 51. And immediately the Lord forgave him. Aggravated and heinous crimes of murder and adultery. Putting band-aids on the consequences of sins misses the spiritual problem. Don't come and say, I'm sorry to me if you've wronged me. Go to God and confess your sin of wronging me because coming to me is putting a band-aid on it. That's band-aid response to sin. Get right with the Lord. Amen. Go to Him. I've sinned against thee. Excellent job. We heard this today. Look at Genesis chapter 5, the inheritance of this death. Genesis chapter 5, this is the genealogy of the human race. Verse 3, and Adam lived in 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. You say, where's Cain and Abel? Abel's dead and Cain don't count. This is the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. There were lots of sons and daughters born to Adam and Eve in 130 years before Seth. But Seth is the one that counts because Seth is going to bring us to the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to keep that in mind when you're reading genealogies like this. The firstborn is not always put first like here. It's uh, you know maybe 75th depending on how active Adam and Eve were in their younger years, in the first 130 of their 930. But notice what it says, and let's get to the point that matters. He begat a son in his own likeness after his image. This isn't the likeness of God in God's image. This is Adam's likeness in Adam's image. This is a depraved Seth, even though Seth is the most right, well, Abel was a righteous man to come out of Adam and Eve. So we've inherited it. And the Bible tells us we've inherited it. Did you know that in Psalm 51, Jerry also read verse 5 to us, In sin did my mother conceive me? Mm -hmm. How did he know what I was going to... Listen, this is just... I love the Lord. In sin did my mother conceive me. You were brought forth in sin. Mm -hmm. That conception that took place in your mother's womb and you can think about it in any wonderful way you want to, about we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are also horribly made because we are made in the likeness of our Adam father. Right. It's all true. Physically, we are one pretty complex and neat physical body that we have. We're fearfully and wonderfully made and how it starts from just about nothing and just expands beautifully and all the members are written in God's book and so we can talk about fearfully and wonderfully made, but at the same time, that child down there that's moving around in that womb has a rebellious anti-God spirit that if it were intelligent enough and could verbalize things and and fight, it would fight and lie. The Bible says in Psalm 58 and verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go forth as soon as they be born speaking lies. I've had seven children. I've enjoyed those times, and I've been able to tell my wife, can you hear Adam? You know, when they're... Listen, you've never heard a four-month-old baby in a crib? using every kind of language that you and you ha- that you have heard and that you haven't heard, cursing you down there, right. that if you don't come and rescue them right now and give them everything they want, where they want it, how they want it, they hate you, just raging. Mm-hmm. As if they've got, you know, fire ants devouring their body. And there's nothing wrong except they want attention. They're selfish little creatures. And you know, parents learn that if, as long as they have open eyes that can think. Remember, total depravity affects how you view the whole world. See, total depravity affects how you view a nursery. You look in there, aren't those sweet little darling adorable babies? No. They're serial killers, just small. Seriously. It affects how we view everything. Oh, mama's little baby. Let me kiss your little perfect behind. Lord, thank you for saving us. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. It's a mess. When we talk about total depravity, we are talking about the nature of man. When we talk about the nature of man, we are talking about the qualities or properties of man. We are talking about his character, his inherent and innate disposition or the way he reacts to things. That's what we mean by total depravity. This is an important theological point I want to make to you right now. Total depravity and original sin are entirely unrelated. Don't get them confused. Original sin is that we are held accountable before God for eating the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is the doctrine of representation. That is the doctrine of federal headship. I'm using theological terms to describe the fact that you are personally held accountable for what Adam did, and that is taught in Romans 5. But what we are dealing with in total depravity is why you sin and how bad are you on the inside and how able are you to cooperate with God. That is your nature and that is taught in Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 3. And you should know the difference between Romans 1 and 5 and between Romans 3 and 5. 1 and 3 are describing your character and conduct as with all men. And Romans 5 is saying we're guilty for what Adam did. So that, even if you did not commit a sin yourself, you would still die because of Adam's sin. It says that in Romans chapter 5. If you did not commit a sin like Adam committed in breaking an express commandment of God, you would still die. And death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. (laughs) Babies died, is what it's saying. From Adam to Moses, for 4,000 years, sin and death reigned because of Adam's sin from a legal, positional standpoint. What we are talking about today is the depraved character, qualities, properties, traits that we have, and how we are unable in our persons to cooperate with God or to please God in any way. And there is so much that could be said and cannot be said At this time, no matter the level of IQ, decisions of choice for or against God are dictated by the human heart. It doesn't matter how smart a human is. Yes, men can still invent more toys, but that doesn't prove a thing about whether they died or not in Eden. Cain's relatives invented many toys in Genesis chapter 4, but their hearts hated God. Their hearts heard the God of heaven Tell Cain, if thou shalt do well, thou shalt be accepted. What fingers flew up from his two hands against the God of heaven? If thou doest well, thou shalt be accepted. Wouldn't you want to do well? Not Cain, because he was depraved. doesn't matter how smart you are. His relatives went on and invented things, but it didn't matter because their hearts were corrupt. When we talk about the nature of total depravity, we are not talking about his intelligence being deprived. We are not talking about his reasoning ability being limited. We are talking about his heart and its affections and ambitions and desires being ruined so that they only love sin and they hate righteousness. They love the devil. They hate God. They love this world. They hate heaven. Ambitions and affections of the human heart. Because foolish Arminians will look at man today and look at his inventions and they'll say, see, man still is not dead. Look at him, all the stuff he's inventing. He's not doing any more than getting a seal to stand on a ball. He's not doing any more than getting a seal to stand on a ball. It's just a a tiny bit more complicated. That's all. The best man has ever done. It's intellectual. Intellectual. It has nothing to do with a loving relationship with God and humility and repentance before God. That requires a heart. And they don't have a heart for God at all. Romans chapter 1. If you read it last evening, let's look at it very quickly. Romans chapter 1. Oh, it's an excellent passage. Romans chapter 1. If you want to go to a place that describes the depravity of man, it's Romans 1 and explains it quite well. It is not that man cannot know about God. It is not that man intellectually cannot choose God. It is that man will not do so. Because he doesn't want to do so. Because he loves sin, he loves himself, and he hates God. Yeah. Romans one 18 through 18-32 are wonderful verses. I'm just going to bring out a few of their phrases. And it's going to be hard for you to follow. And if I go too slowly, it just takes a lot of time. Do you know what it says in this passage? That the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth. Though depraved, a man can hold the truth. A man can hold somebody of truth depraved. So it says of this, so it says of depraved man in these 15 verses. They hold the truth. God is manifest in them. They know something about God. God hath showed it unto them. It is clearly seen. It is understood. They are without excuse. I'm down to verse 20. When they knew God, it says, they changed the truth of God. That means they had the truth of God because we started out by the fact that they were holding the truth. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. They're haters of God. And knowing the judgment of God, they continue in the things they know that God hates and will judge. Incredible. So see, it's not intellectual incapacity. It's not intellectual inability. It's a heart inability. They know. And how do they know? What And what do they know? They know from the natural creation. God has revealed himself in the natural creation, and what has he revealed? That he has a Godhead, he's different from them, and he has eternal power. They all know it. This is totally consistent with Psalm 19, first six verses, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. Every language, every dialect of every man that has ever been born in this world has come Encountered God and has understood enough that he should have chosen God. But he makes a choice because he hates God. It's a fig leaf, band aid, hide in the trees, blame game. They come up with idols, statues. It says that. They changed, verse 23, they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image. Made like two, corruptible man. Look at verse 22, what it stems from. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They think there's something. They think they figured something out. They think they figured that there is no God. Even though God revealed himself to them. This is depravity. Total depravity does not alter decision-making capability or perceived freedom to choose. It's just that they'll never choose righteousness. They'll never choose God. They'll choose away from it, and so will we all. If we weren't saved by grace, total depravity is not utter depravity. Men are not as bad as they could be by outward actions. All men are as bad as they could be internally. Men are not as bad as they could be externally. It's not utter depravity. Do you know why it's not utter depravity but total depravity? The mercy of God and His His controlling providence of the universe. Surely, the wrath of man shall praise thee, and the remainder of wrath thou shalt restrain. God only allows the amount of wrath it's going to be to to accomplish his purposes. If he was to withdraw himself completely from this this world, this world would explode in violent abuse of God and each other and themselves. Every man is capable of any sin on a moment's notice if God were to let him go. Each of you, each of us, therefore... We ought to humble ourselves before Him, confess our sins, and seek His face daily because He can let us go and do things that are horrible. Don't you wonder sometimes why aren't there more violent, creative acts of terror and stuff? I mean, most of these violent creatures that the Lord allows loose once in a while are just stupid. And the number of their victims are so small. You know, I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where there were 105,000 every Saturday in the fall sitting in one little place so close together that you could hardly shoot one bullet and not get a couple. You know, why, didn't, why isn't somebody flown a small plane over a place like that and dropped a couple grenades and, you know, taken out a few thousand? Don't you? Am I crazy? You know Why? There's a God in heaven. So when you look around and you say, it doesn't look as bad as it could be, why don't you drop to your knees and say thank you God that it's not as bad as it could be. Then you look around and you see a boy scout taking off his jacket and laying it in the mud puddle for the little old lady to walk across between two streets. And you say, look at that goodness. Do you know what the Bible says? The Bible says the plowing of the wicked is sin. Right, right. The Bible says whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Yes. Little boy scout, why, why is he doing that? I'm the, best, I'm, the best troop, I'm the best scout in my troop. Human pride. Why is he doing it? Because he's got to get 10 of them for his next merit badge. Anybody ever in scouts? He wants to be an eagle scout. Eagle scouts need community recognition, so he's got to lay his coat in the mud puddle. I've talked at length before about two farmers, because the Bible says in Proverbs 21, 14, the plowing of the wicked is sin. A wicked man goes out. He's upset about his wife. He's resentful that he doesn't have a better yoke of oxen. He looks at the ground and complains that there isn't enough rain. All he can think about is how much money he wants to make and what he's going to do with that money for himself. All of his thoughts are entirely wicked. The righteous man goes out there before he, before he yokes up his ox and he walks over and gives them a kiss, puts his arm on a forehead, puts his arm around them, oh, feels their strength, thank you, Lord, for making my tractor. I didn't have to go to John Deere. You made me a tractor. Thank you, Lord. Oh, Lord, I love their strength. Um, It's a beautiful day. Thank you for the fact that it's overcast and raining on me. The earth needs to be soft. I'm going to go out there and go to work. Lord, if you'll bless me just a little bit, I want to take care of that preacher man down the street just a little bit better. And, Lord, I, I love the wife that you've given me. I'm so thankful for those children. Help me to make enough that we can eat comfortably this year. You are a blessed God. Oh, look at that earthworm down there. Thank you, Lord, for ventilating the soil with those little worms. If it weren't for you, total different. Amen. Total, total difference. I hope I actually got you. You know, everything we do, everything we do we can get excited about to the glory of God. Amen. Or everything we do we can complain about is the C word. I was going to use the B word. Thank you, Lord. Amen. How far does it go? The human will is so corrupt against God. You know what Jesus told the Pharisees of His generation? These are the people that were the most religious in the world. Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are, which, and they, are they which testify of Me, and ye will not come to Me. Right. That's John chapter 5. John chapter 6, verse 44 and verse 65. No man can come to Me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. No man will, no man can, no man can see. John 3, 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John eight forty three and 47, can't hear the kingdom of God. He that is of God heareth God's words, ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. Now how are you going to get someone saved that can't see, can't hear, will not come and cannot come? Every head bowed and every eye closed. This is just part of my sermon. Every head bowed and every eye closed. All you have to do is come to Jesus. He's done all that he can do. Now the rest is up to you. It is all so easy for you all to be saved today. Just come to Jesus. What does the Bible say? Ye will not, ye cannot, you can't see, you can't hear. Then why are you talking, preacher? Preacher. We preach to God's elect. Right. And we only preach to God's elect that are regenerated. Amen. Because one of God's elect that is not yet regenerated is going to respond just like a natural man because that's all he's got working for him so far right. is his old man. Right. You say, well, if I could adopt, if I could adopt a depraved child, I'd give it a loving environment. You want to turn to Isaiah 26 with me? I'd give it a, a loving environment and, I, and we could change it. If a child were to grow up in a home of love and tenderness, kindness, generosity, seeing love and fairness all around them, they would love Jesus. This should comfort you parents. It'll change your view of the, the whole world, right? Till God changes a human heart, our efforts are band-aid child training. Don't settle for band-aids, children. Run to the Lord. Get right with Him. Beg Him to change your heart. Beg Him to restore your heart. Beg Him to give you a clean spirit. And parents, pray twice as much this next week as you did this past week. Band-aids, kindness, cookies in their lunch, and an I love you note does not work. Isaiah 26 and verse 10. Let favor be showed to the wicked. There we go. Rehabilitate them. Yet will he not learn righteousness in the land of uprightness? Put him in a perfect environment of uprightness. Will he deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord? Will you behold the majesty of the Lord with me? Love him with me. You can't get him to, the Lord's got to make the change. We can't do it. You say, but it's methods. Come over to Luke chapter 16. Luke 16. It's methods that will get the depraved man to repent. Well, Jesus dealt with that. I hope you noticed in Isaiah 26 and verse 10 that rehabilitation in a a better environment just isn't going to do it. There's a rich man in hell. He has five brothers. He begs Abraham in verses 27 and 28 to send Lazarus, the beggar that had died and gone to heaven, back from the dead to go tell his five brothers not to come to hell. Father Abraham, please, I don't want my brothers to go to hell. Send Lazarus back. Now that would be one impressive evangelistic method to bring somebody back from the dead. Your brother's in hell. He spoke to Father Abraham because I was in heaven. You five brothers know that you buried both of us. Your brother's in hell. He's begging for one drop of water on his parched tongue. He doesn't want you to come here. That should be... (laughs) I'm thinking I'd sign up right then. I'd... I'd enlist. Because that's a method that no one's been able to use. Benny Hinn, Joel, none of them can use a method like that to bring someone back from the dead. But do you know what Jesus said about a method like that? Yep. Verse 29 Abraham's Abraham is speaking, but Jesus is telling this. They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Rich man, you've got the synagogue. Your five brothers get to go to the synagogue every Sunday, every, every Saturday, and they have Moses and the prophets. They get, they get to hear Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Malachi. God's word to them? Isn't God's word good enough? Oh, Father Abraham, if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent, verse 30. Now that sounds good. I would say so far that the rich man's on track if I didn't know the rest of the Bible. But what does Jesus say in verse 31? If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. It does not matter that you present your arguments better. It does not matter that an evangelistic has some program that is better. It does not matter what you do that appeals to their flesh. It does not matter how enticing you make it. It does not matter how intimidating you make it. It does not matter if you have a movie that is done in HD and that is done so well and it shows the pain and the eternity and the fire and the, of hell. It won't work you mean to tell me that the best method is just preaching Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Malachi? Amen. Amen. Because if a man's born again, he knows of the words of God, and its methods don't matter. Right. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. The longest I've ever preached on total depravity to you, brethren, in 30 years is about 15 minutes. That I can think of. And I could go for. About six hours. And I'm totally. I've reached the end of my tether. You know the doctrine. I want to show you the proof of it. Just very quickly. Look at the proof of it. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3. And you hath he quickened. That word quickened means to make alive. When the. Bible says in Hebrews 4:12 that the word of God is quick and powerful. What is it saying about the word quick? What does it mean? Alive. Alive. When the Bible says that Jesus Christ is coming back to judge the quick and the dead, does it tell us what the word quick means? Live. Alive, the living. So, and you hath he quickened, you hath he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, so that Paul, in the New Testament, exactly agrees with Genesis 2.17 and what God said would happen if Adam ate the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament will further explanify and describe that death in trespasses and sins. Verse 2, this is what it's like, wherein, in time past... Ye, Ephesians, walked according to the course of this world, you lived like everyone else, according to the prince of the power of the air, the devil, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Those are reprobates on their way to hell, among whom also we all, including the apostles, had our conversation or our lifestyle in times past in the lusts of our flesh, Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature, there's the word that I like to use, by nature, this is not legality. This is vitality. This is not your personal standing before God. This is your personal character. We're by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Children of wrath are the vessels of wrath described in Romans 9 that are going to hell. And, and we by nature were exactly like them. All we cared about were fulfilling the selfish desires of our flesh and of our mind, fulfilling the lust of our flesh, that is the sinful wildness against God. We had our lifestyle among the world, we were following the devil, the prince of the power of the air, and that's what we were like. But we were quickened. We had to be given life. And so it's not a doctor they need, it's not medication, it's a creator and resurrection. And remember, I started this morning from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, which tell us that in order for you to believe the gospel, it takes the same working of God's almighty, exceeding great power that raised Jesus from the dead. Because there is resurrection and quickening in verses 19 and 20, and there is resurrection and quickening in verse 1 of chapter 2, and verse 5 of chapter 2, where the word quickened is used again, and then in verse 10 it's called created in Christ Jesus Unto good works. It takes a creator. And the creator has done it for us. The creator has reached down and undone our nature that we got by inheritance from Adam. We're not talking about the legality. That's the second Adam that stood in our place and obeyed for us and saved us legally and positionally before the tribunal of God. We're talking about our corrupt nature, my thinking, my heart, my affections, my ambitions, my lusts, All that's been changed because I have been quickened and given a new man. So now I'm a schizophrenic creature. I have my old man, I have my new man, and I get to choose between the two of them in my spirit. The Apostle Paul laid out three different parties that were in him I myself, and this old man, and this new man. And you make a choice put off the old man, put on the new man. Well, who's putting them off? I myself. Who's putting them on? I myself. I have these two principles within me. I have this raging depravity from Adam. And I have this zealous righteousness from God in me. And I put one off and I put one on every day in every action at all levels. Lord, help us to do that. Romans chapter 3. Oh, no, Psalm 14 Lord, I have seriously mismanaged my time. I have seriously mismanaged my time twice. Once in my office and once in the pulpit. I wanted to blow this subject up and get every verse in the Bible that dealt with it, and we're getting there. I want to go spend some more time on it this week. It's it's a serious problem I have. I I don't want to talk about your pastor, but I have a serious problem. I don't like giving up on an outline until I think it's exhaustive. And there's 31,101 verses in the Bible and a whole lot of them have to talk about sinfulness. (laughs) Psalm 14, look at this. The fool has said in his heart, verse 1, there is no God. What does God have to say about them? They are corrupt. What does corrupt mean? Depraved. This is total depravity. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. That's bad. That's depraved. There is none that doeth good. No exceptions. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. Do they have any understanding of spiritual? Do they understand gravity? Yes, because an apple fell and hit. Was it Newton? I'm thinking Galileo. Does it matter? It hit somebody on the head. An apple fell, hit somebody on the head. They understood gravity. But they don't understand God. That's right. That did understand and seek God. God could find none. When you run into an Arminian, you say, Do you believe in election? Well, yes, I believe in election because it's in the Bible. Well, describe it to me. Well, God looked down from heaven upon the children of men, and he saw all those that would invite Jesus into their heart, and he elected them. That's what. anybody ever heard that? I've heard it so many times. You know, I just just makes me sick. Yes, amen. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men, and he found every single one of us in this condition. They are corrupt. I'm going back and up to verse 1 again. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there was any that didn't that there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one could he have said it any better? You say, okay, he said it once. No, he didn't. (laughs) I want to remind you of the law of emphasis. It's one of the minor rules of Bible hermeneutics on studying the Bible. When God repeats something, you should pay attention to it. This is in Psalm 14 verses 1 through 3, and it is Psalm 53 verses 1 through 3. He has doubled it in the book of Psalms, and then Paul quotes it in Romans chapter 3 verses 10 through 12. It is in the Bible three times. There is none that doeth good, no not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. There is no one out there trying to find God that needs you to help them find God. When God finds them, they will be taught of God and they will know God. Because that is a term of the new covenant. Hebrews chapter 8 and John 6.45. They do not need you to know God in the nature that we are talking about because God will give them a new nature that is created in righteousness and true holiness after the image of Him that created Him. Do you know what it means about that new nature? You have Christ's nature inside you. And you're not going to put it there, and no missionary is going to put it there, and Billy Graham never put it in one person in the entirety of his 60 year ministry. Right. Romans 3. Romans 3. Romans is a theological discourse, an argument by the Apostle Paul proving false doctrine wrong and proving how men are saved. We've already been to Romans chapter 1, that in verses 18 through 32, it describes the depravity of the Gentiles. Chapter two is the depravity of the Jews, specifically identifies them. If you don't believe me, just look at verse 17. Behold, thou art called a Jew. So if chapter two is about the Jews. I've taught all of this to you before, phrase by phrase. We come to chapter three. He's still proving the depravity of both. So he comes to verse nine. What then? Are we better than they? Are Jews better than Gentiles? No in no wise, for we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. We've already proved it. One chapter for the Gentiles, chapter 1. One chapter for the Jews, chapter 2. We've already proved it beforehand, but just in case you're not fully convinced yet of total depravity, let me lay nine verses on you. Verse 10, as it is written. Where is it written? Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, which we just read. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together becoming profitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Now my Bible has no, not one at the end of verse 12, and it has no, not one at the end of verse 10. Does your Bible have that as well? Is God just trying to pound something into our heads that there is no not one person out there that understands and is trying to seek God and just needs to be shown Jesus and they'll just leap on the Jesus' bandwagon? We are messed up. Just like God promised. In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Their throat is an open sepulcher. What's a sepulcher for? Dead dead bodies yep. kind of matches Genesis three and two their throat is an open suffocator. with their tongues. They have used deceit. They were told a lie. They believed a lie. Now they tell lies. The poison of asks is under their lips. Do you ever say anything that cuts people and hurts people like the poison of an ass? Yes, you do. Yes, I do. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. We were cursed and now we curse their feet are swift to shed blood Satan killed them. They killed themselves. Now they want to kill others. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You know that verses 10 through 12 come from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. Verses 13 through 18 come from five other quotations, four from Psalms and one from Isaiah. Six quotations in a row. The Lord just pounds through Paul by the Holy Spirit from the Old Testament to teach us there is no fear of God before their eyes. We saw that in Genesis chapter 3, the way Adam and Eve responded to their sin. There was no fear of God before their eyes. And look at this cursing and this bitterness and this destruction and no peace and violence and war. And uh, uh, their their throat is an open sepulcher, the stuff that comes out of people's mouths. And their tongues... There's, there's none that doeth good, and there's none that seeketh after God, and there's none that understand their predicament. There's none that understand there's a God. In... No, not one. That's, that's the extent of depravity. All of us, all of us this way, all humanity, all of us this way, every part of our being at every level, is depraved, corrupt, abominable, and hates God. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This, listen, do you believe that we have people in this church that have taken psychology, anthropology, sociology, and paid good money and bought a textbook for it? What should we do to them? Well, we're all guilty. We're all guilty. Do you know what you're getting right now? Psychology, anthropology, sociology, and theology. And soteriology. Say, what's that one? The doctrine of salvation. Thank you, blessed God. Oh, yes. Don't leave me with some depraved professor teaching me about human psychology or sociology. Give me this textbook. Amen. Students. Remember, there's really only one textbook. There's things you've got to learn. We learned them. We regurgitated what they wanted. And then we went on to bigger and better things. A lot bigger and a lot better. And that's the Word of God. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 7 and 8. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. Verse 6 tells us what he's talking about. To be carnally minded is death. Isn't that what God told Adam? If you want to think about this world and do things against me, then you're going to die. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Do you want a life of peace? Do you want life and peace? Mm -hmm. Then be spiritually minded. Love the things of the Spirit of God. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. That's what you have by your first birth. Your spiritual mind is by your second birth. Your carnal mind is by your first birth. That's what your parents gave you. That's what should be on your birth certificate. This kid was born with a carnal mind. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. Notice that animosity, adversarial relationship that we have with God, our Creator and our Father. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be, because it won't be. It chooses against it. Ye will not come. That's why they can't come. There's enough intellectual capacity to believe anything. They can believe something about the Bible. They can believe blasphemy against the Bible. You say, prove it to me. Go read John chapter 2, John chapter 6, John chapter 7, and John chapter 8. There were many that believed on Jesus that Jesus said were children of the devil. But they didn't believe in their hearts with a love toward him that was going to cause them to repent. As soon as he would say something to them like this, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. We've never been in bondage to any man. You find, bring me somebody that you think loves Jesus, and I'll ask them just a few questions or show them just a few verses, and I will get them to respond the same way the crowd in the synagogue of Nazareth responded when Jesus opened up a little bit about election. They led him to a brow of a hill to throw him off the hill and kill him. After they had sat there a few minutes earlier, wondering at the gracious words that came out of his mouth. That's depravity. You know it yourself, don't you? Don't you know you're depraved? At the present time, I have two books on a coffee table. Just Just be merciful. I have a book about the house of Rothschild, and I have the Bible which book will i get drowsy with first does anybody want to agree with me or am i just a, am i just judas iscariot the no. bible the bible, bible does everybody know that yes yeah. if one of you were to engage me with boring drivel and twaddle after the service could we have a conversation that could extend a couple hours when i get on my knees and grab the ankles of God to pray with him. Why does my stinking mind wander? Why can't I fall asleep while I'm praying? Is there anybody in here that I've fallen asleep on while we were talking? Even if it was a long time, a long conversation, did I ever fall asleep on you? You know what? I'm a mess. Do you all know depravity from your own self? is To maintain the love of Christ and Christ's preeminence, the number one theme in your life is that difficult to keep that there as the topmost stone because you're depraved. You should know it from the inside out. I shouldn't, you know, we know it from the Bible, but we know it from our own souls as well. Satan continues to lie, denying that this, denying this doctrine. You know, they'll look up verses. You've ever met an Arminian? They'll go to Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19. It says, choose life. See, man still has the right and the ability to choose. There's just a problem. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19 is not written to depraved sinners. It's written to the church of God of the Old Testament. Come on. The disaster that this creates, all kinds of disasters, people thinking they're saved, all kinds of methods, all kinds of gimmicks, ridiculous preaching false preaching, false doctrine. What's the solution? You must be born again. And how do we get born again? The wind bloweth where it listeth. That means wherever it wants. The wind bloweth where it listeth. Thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit of God. God's wind... God's Spirit blew on me. I used to sit under the preaching of the gospel and be thinking about girls, sports, cars, motorcycles, would this hurry up and get over with. What am I gonna do this afternoon? Man, she's a babe. Now I'm up here, and I've had a wonderful time this week studying the boring, dusty old doctrine of total depravity. And because of some events of this week, it was just the Lord loving me, showing me that His Word has the answer for everything. Amen. Brother Jerry gets up and let's go with Psalm 51. I'm just thinking, perfect Lord. What a change. Can you all say the same thing with me? That what a change the Lord's made? Yes. I love to say. Instead of the who, shaking my world down at 150 decibels or 130 decibels, won't get fooled again, or deep purple throbbing away with smoke on the water. It's come thou fount of every blessing tune my heart to sing thy grace. And I hate that stuff. The solution and the evidence. If you believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and love Jesus Christ and want to obey him, God has made that change in you. If you're not sure if God's made that change in you, then run to him right now and repent of your foolishness, waywardness, worldliness, weakness, and wickedness, and he will give you strength. As you draw nigh to him, he will draw nigh to you. If you do not have that zealous desire inside of you, then go to him right now. Repent of your foolishness. Repent of your depravity. Be as if you were in the trees of the garden and run out into the midst of the garden and grab the ankles of him with whom we have to do and spill your soul to him and beg him to have mercy upon you and to revive you because he is able to speak the word and to revive you. And the more you draw nigh to Him, He will draw nigh to you. The more you spend time in this Word, He will draw nigh to you through the pages of Scripture and comfort your soul. Amen. Much more could be said. Some people will say that their feelings are a guide. You know better. Some will say their thoughts are a guide. You know better. Some will say, follow your heart. Oh, have mercy upon us. Amen. To follow our hearts, feelings, and thoughts is so ridiculous. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Lord, save us. Why are we different? Do you know that you're born again? Do you know that you're born again? Make sure that you're born again. You can't regenerate yourself, but you certainly can repent of your sins, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and love your brethren, which just a few weeks ago I preached to you, is born of God. A person that does righteousness, believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, and loves his brethren, is born of God. Prove it. Paul would say examine yourselves and prove yourselves lest you be reprobates. Prove that you've been born again. Let's have changed lives. Let's have changed lives at every level. Let's have changed lives church-wide. May the Lord bless by His grace the preaching of His Word and may the Lord bless by His grace through His Spirit the regeneration, and the reclamation, and the tuning, and the direction, and the inclination of all our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.